You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. If you work in a go-to-market role, the funnel is a constant thing in your life. Whether it's a simple funnel, a waterfall, or it's flipped, or it's bow-tied, we have this constant need to create some sort of mental model around our revenue process. And of course, that's for good reason. But the problem I've seen is that so much oxygen gets sucked up talking about what type of funnel we should have, that there's much less thought about how that funnel actually gets operationalized. How do we build it? How do we make it robust and scalable? How do we make sure that data is accurate? All that kind of stuff. And it's in those little areas where all the problems actually tend to begin. I've had a bit of an obsession with funnel tracking throughout my career. And when I spoke to my friend Charlie Saunders about this, I quickly realized he's been on the same journey. If you don't know Charlie, he is a top shelf revenue operator, the COO and co-founder of CS2, which is a marketing and RevOps consultancy, and also co-host of the Revenue Growth Architects podcast, which is a great show that you should listen to. And he and his team have built some really cool solutions in this area. So I wanted to invite him on the show for a special deep dive into all things funnel ops. Charlie, really glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I know we both sort of nerded out about this, so it's about time we just sort of lay everything out on paper about the funnel. I mean, let's start big picture, kind of first principles from your point of view. Why do we do this? Why is it so critical that we have this process in place? Yeah, so first off, where we're coming from is funnel is the most important area of your architecture a B2B SaaS company needs. Everything centers around it. And I categorize it into three reasons. The first one is all around trying to get insight. So with the funnel, you're obviously tracking your buying stages. You're seeing where buyers are coming from and you're capturing the demand. You're looking at the conversion rates and velocity through all of those buying stages all the way through to pipeline and revenue. So if you're not tracking that stuff, then you don't, you've got a huge insight gap into what's happening in your organization. You don't know where's pipeline coming from. You don't know what well, is the highest converting pipeline. You don't know where the different channels are going to be having the best velocity through the funnel. And you're really just going to not be able to make as many good business decisions about where to invest and where to try and improve your business. So the first one is all around insights, and that's really the tracking side of it. And then also related to the tracking side, more practically around how your internal teams are working. If you don't have a well-organized process for moving buyers through these final stages, and maybe it's worth kind of articulating what those stages might be, we call them sales ready, moving into a sales working stage. We don't like to use acronyms at CST. We like to just use words. So they may be moving into a meeting booked stage, pipeline stage, true kind of pipeline forecasted pipeline and revenue one. And if you don't have a well-architected process then your team doesn't know what to do at each of those stages, which will then drive efficiencies throughout all of those stages, like how sales even follows up on an MQL or a sales ready. What should sales be doing to try and then progress towards pipeline, like what the activities they need to do to connect with the buyer, to get a meeting in the calendar. So the funnel is all about 
building out that process that you can repeat and have a good buyer experience through all of those steps. I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC, that's K-N-A-K, and get a special offer just for my listeners. And that last piece there around the buyer experience is the third thing that we really like to call out. Because if you don't have this architected well, then you are not only limiting your company because you're not going to be able to have an efficient revenue generating engine, but you're also impacting the experience of your buyers, right? Like how many companies out there, you know, you fill out a demo request and it takes like five days for them to get back to you. The reason it probably is because one, they've got bad process around that particular situation, but also they're probably not tracking what is happening. Like no one knows this is happening. So everyone knew that was happening, they'd probably go and fix it. They don't have that funnel data to show, oh, okay, our conversion rate from sales ready to working is super low and it's taking five days for sales to progress those stages, then we should go and fix that. And that happens at every single stage. Each stage has an operational action and that's something that a person needs to perform to help move forward. And if you don't have that well built out, you're not tracking that, then you can't improve it. So it's really hard to improve your sales process. It's really difficult to improve what you're doing from a marketing point of view. And you're just left with that big insight gap and just a really inefficient way to turn buyers into revenue. When we talk about the insights piece of that, to me, there's two aspects. There's the stages of the funnel, sort of like stages of a conveyor belt, if you like, and like in an assembly process and people are moving through them. And then there's an aspect of attribution or like what were the marketing or sales or whatever actions that is causing somebody to move from stage to stage. And you sort of alluded to both of them. You could have a funnel without attribution involved, just to say we have so many leads, so many opportunities, so much close one revenue without that there. But to you, it seems that is integral to the process. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. Building funnels for years. If I ever built funnel tracking and showed it to a CMO, and was like, this is how many leads you got, this is how many went to work, and this is how many went to meetings. The next question is going to be, wait, but where did they come from? Was this an event? Was it a demo request? Was it you know, through some of our paid efforts? Was it an outbound funnel? Maybe they do PLG. Was this kind of a PLG sales-assisted funnel? Is this a customer funnel? Was this a partner deal? Everyone cares about that, right? Just seeing the volume and conversion rates in a silo without knowing what that tipping point was is missing a huge piece of the picture. So when we think about it, I just mentioned the phrase that we use tipping point. We like to look at what was that tipping point that led to the sales conversation. So within that model, we're looking at it's a last touch model, but not a last touch before opportunity, last touch before the initial sales conversation. So we call that stage sales ready. And the reason why we call that stage sales ready is because it's more than just an MQL. It can be, like I mentioned, all of those other sources that can then lead to sales needing to engage. So it could be, like I said, an outbound funnel, partner deal, 
It could be customer expansion, like some of our clients have the concept of a customer. It could be you know, any of those or EQR, like I mentioned. So we want to be able to look at each of those tipping points. And then some of the tipping points have further granularity that you need, right? So like, it's not good enough to just say this is like a marketing inbound funnel. You want to know what the way that we look about it is it's kind of the where, what scenario, like where did they come from and what did they do from a marketing perspective? So where they came from might be a paid ad and what they did might be a demo quest, for example. So you want to capture those data points. So then you can really start to understand, okay, where I'm looking at conversion rates through my funnel, you know, let's take an example where content syndication sells ready to pipeline might be like 0.3%, but maybe an event or, you know, your demo request is, you know, an 80% conversion rate. That might be a dramatic example between sales ready to pipeline. And that is really what's going to help you make better decisions, right? More than just the volume through the funnel. The volume through the funnel can help you optimize your sales process probably, but not really the marketing side. You need to know more data. Um, I know we're going to talk about some of the downsides to using this approach because it is just looking at just one touch point and versus multi-touch attribution, but we can obviously go through that later. But it's still a model to help you improve what you're doing from a marketing and sales perspective. You touched on metrics, you know, you build the funnel and you lay out the metrics, which is kind of the big reveal, the thing that the CMO or the CRO actually cares about. What are the key things that you think people need to look at within the funnel? We've already covered looking at the source at that tipping point, but then there's three primary metrics types that I would categorize. There's volume data, which can also include, you know, pipeline, how many at each stage, how much pipeline. Then there's conversion data. What's the conversion rate between stages? And there's velocity. So how quickly are they moving through the stages? So that's really the three major kind of types of reporting that you're going to be building with funnel data. And then from that point, you want to then build out your analytics framework to be able to give each audience the right data. We can go super deep on this, but generally we have a few different types of dashboards, which can help different teams. There's like the planning dashboard, which might give you a rolling 12-month view of conversion rates that could help you do your revenue planning. You would have an optimization dashboard. This one, you could go super deep. It's like all of the different conversion points, looking at different um, channels, looking at different offers, looking at you know, kind of sales follow-up time, even rep conversion rates, everything that could help you find a piece of insight to help you improve the efficiency of your funnel. Then there's the goal tracking dashboard. Once you've built your revenue plan, then you want to see, okay, we need this many sales ready. This is how much pipeline we need. Are we on track? So you'd be looking at that in kind of meters and are we hitting the goals? And the last one is all around just like pure campaign performance. It's like a marketing dashboard where you can dig into all of the channels and campaigns and look at the funnel data. So the three things, the volume conversion and velocity by campaign, by channel, by all of the marketing activities. Everything you've just said makes perfect sense. Generally, all the smart people I speak to seem to agree on those metrics. The challenge I find is when it's like the devil's in the details on the funnel. So when you start to take messy, complicated reality and run it through those pipes, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. I don't know if you remember the thing in Marketo where you build your funnel, you set up your stages and you... The modeler. The modeler. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a little while since I built one. It's been ages since we've done that. <laughs> so many products try to solve this. 
in these kind of ways that are just a little bit janky that don't work. Because with the modeler, you can end up with this like crazy spaghetti. I'm sure you've seen one of these things that like just give you nightmares to look at it, where it's got all the strands connected together in all these different ways, all these detours. And this is where things can get really hard because either you're like excluding data and just having a really narrow view or all these funnels, when you scratch beneath the surface, say at least traditional ways of building them, they have a lot of limitations. How have you struggled with that, I guess, over the years, if you have? I mean, there's a few things I'll call out first. There's that quote by George Box that all models are wrong, but some are useful. So this is definitely not trying to be a 100% representation of reality, right? That's why it's a data model and not literally a representation of reality. The other is there is definitely a difference between the buyer's journey and what this is really solving for, which is the sales process. So a buyer, obviously, throughout the sales process, they're looking at, even just from a content point of view, they're probably looking at like what people would consider like top of funnel content, bottom of funnel content. They're kind of engaging in all of this untrackable activity. There's all of these just touch points. You need a different attribution method to be able to understand and analyze their touch points. That's where multi-touch attribution comes in. But for the funnel, what we're really looking for is what is capturing that demand and then looking at the progression of that demand through the sales process. So that's why we're looking at sales ready to working, to meeting, to pipeline, to close one. The sales process does work in those stages. It doesn't mean that everyone goes through those stages linearly and never can kind of go back. And that's where really thinking about the data model for how you're actually tracking this is important because we're going to get to this, but say you're just adding date stamps to your leads and contacts to go, okay, when they hit these stages, we're adding these dates. Now, but then, like you said, the buying process could be messy. They could drop out of the funnel. They'd not be interested, not get back to the salesperson. Then they might MQL again, or they might come through a different source, like a partner, or you might have a product-led strategy, so they might kind of sign up for your product. It's all very messy. If you're then just tracking all of that data on the lead and contact, you're just overwriting their previous journey through that funnel. So you lose all of that data. But if you're, we will get to this maybe later, if you're tracking a more of an advanced data model or the custom object, you can track each of those journeys independently and actually see and kind of retain that data. So I know kind of we're getting into the bit of the technical there, but when you're trying to build out this model, that is important to think about because of the cyclical nature of the buying process, the ways that people aren't going to be following this process perfectly. So you do need to think about how you're capturing that data and making sure that you do have as good a representation of their buying process as possible without thinking you need to have a perfect representation of Because if we strive for perfection in marketing and revenue ops, you're going to be disappointed. Every time. You've teased a little bit, say, a more ideal solution, is, and I know that we agree, broadly speaking, on the perspective of what that ideal solution looks like. But I think it's worthwhile to step through a little bit, like, what are some of the common ways of doing this, and where do they break down, and, and some of the pitfalls that each of us have seen. And I think the most straight, let's call it the most basic, is like sort of what the out-of-the-box method is in most CRMs, is you have some kind of lead status. So you have a status, it kind of does the job, it's a pick list, right? It moves you through. It's missing a lot of the resolution, but from your point of view, why can't we just have a status? <laughs> or why can't we have the Marketo modeler? So with the leading contact status, the way that we build it, and in any method, you're still going to use that. 
it's kind of the default field. The sales knows where it is. They know what it means in most cases. You want it to be the representation of where that person is in the buying stages, right? But if you only have that, you know, CMO says, how many meetings did we book in Q1? How are you going to report on that? Obviously, you probably use activity reports, you know, take away that. But like, if you're just going to look at your funnel data and do that status, it's not capturing the volume. It's just showing you how many people are in that status at that time. So then what people did is they would start adding date stamps to the leads and contacts. Even when we were building, you know, Marketo modelers back in the day, you were still in your smart campaigns, like, you know, you move them in the stage, but also updated date stamp that would be represented in Salesforce, right? Especially as people started to realize kind of the limitations of Marketo reporting and also the fact that the reporting generally, you know, even back then and probably still now, Salesforce is still a good place to have like a lot of your reporting. I know a lot of our clients are moving to BI. And this is a bit of a tangent, but there's still a time and place to having your Salesforce data, right? And be able to report on in Salesforce, particularly for some operational aspects, even if you do have a really strong BI team and BI strategy. But anyway, back to the original point, adding date stamps to the lead and contact was good. And we've done that loads of times over the years. And it can get you some data, but you end up seeing a lot of these issues. One is just the way the Salesforce operates, which is you have leads and contacts. So you've got, you know, a lead goes through some stages, gets to be converted into a contact. Now it's a contact. So you're trying to get a full funnel view. You've got to create a lead report and a contact report. Makes volume conversion velocity data like super hard to get. So then people would be like, okay, well, I can't look at conversion rates very well, particularly when a lead could turn into a contact, not reach the end of the funnel, get recycled as a contact and then re-MQL as a contact, right? So you could have a lot of issues around reporting. So then you would pull that data into Excel, try and combine it all together to do your full funnel volume conversion velocity reporting. And then the other big issue with when someone does get recycled and then MQLs again, you have to overwrite the last M. You might have an original MQL date and a last MQL date, but you're going to overwrite the last MQL date. So if the MQL twice, maybe you've retained the data. If the MQL three times, four times, five times, now you've lost it, right? And yes, you can have a counter to count how many times they've done it, but you don't really have a stored data set, which is showing you every progression through the funnel, where they ended and when they started again and all the data stamps. So the lead and contact model is kind of inherently flawed through those issues. So then what people started to do is they kind of like this hacky way of doing it where you kind of add everyone to a Salesforce campaign and you know, use formulas to then get everyone in there and then use the formulas to combine the leads and contacts. Or there's people would then just start to go fully into BI to like join the data tables and get over the data in the data warehouse and use BI. But a lot of, particularly the BI issue comes back to my issue with that Salesforce, I know people love this distributed truth narrative or they don't want CRM to be the source of truth, but you really do need an ability to build a report in Salesforce that matches your report in BI. Like, I don't know how many times I've had it where client is like full in, fully into BI, they've got all of their reporting infrastructure there, but then their sales team or even the marketing team building some reports in Salesforce. Now everyone's got like different numbers because there's all of this data manipulation outside of Salesforce. Might be an enablement thing. But our point of view is that you want your data to be correct and 
right in Salesforce so you can report on it. And then just sync that table direct and use that MBI for funnel data without any additional manipulation outside of Salesforce. So that brings us to kind of the last solution using a Salesforce custom object to track all of the funnel data. You can create a record every time someone repeat journeys through the funnel, getting rid of the issues around overwriting data. You got one report type in Salesforce. You sync that data table direct into BI. So you have the report you see in BI is exactly the same as the report you see in Salesforce. And it is a pretty, compared to the BI solution, bit less to maintain if you built it the right way in Salesforce versus working with kind of complex data teams and people who don't really understand marketing data who might be running your data warehouse and isolation. So when I said a lot there, that's the major ways people have approached this and the one that we would recommend is the custom object. We'll dive into some depth in the custom object, but just a few things that come to mind for me listening, because you articulated very well all the kind of attempts at solving this problem. I think you hit on pretty much every single one that I am aware of or have tried. And it's funny because you can almost see like two or three years there of like a team inching their way forward, sort of the evolution of a process. Like, let's do this. Ah, it's not working. Let's just add another set of date stamps. Like, oops, doesn't work in that way. Like, okay, well, we'll put this other thing on top of it. And I know that you mentioned it being hacky and I agree to this, but honestly, the default way short of a custom object that I've used historically is the campaign method, which at least brings leads and contacts together native, like just for the benefit of anyone listening, it didn't fully grasp it, like having a single campaign called life cycle or whatever that you add everyone to, and you can use formulas to whether it's leader contact, you bring it all into one place. So now at least you have a unified data set. And in that case, typically we would start out with saying, we're only going to track the first time through. So that's, you know, a way of addressing those potential limitations. You say, we're just going to narrow the scope. And sometimes that works for people. And, and so the question that leads me to is, from your point of view, do you just start off everybody now with the custom object? Because for me, back when I was on the agency side, not everybody was ready to start there. It was a more expensive solution. It was a more complicated solution. So maybe this like V1, admitting that it's lower fidelity, and then maybe you can graduate. We also didn't have a custom object solution as productized as I think that you now have it. Or do you now feel like we've made it so easy to go this other route? There's really no point building a tiny house and then building a bigger house. You might as well just build the house that you want and live in it. It's a really good question. I wrestle with it a lot because I agree the campaign option, it, it can work. Obviously, one of the big limitations is that the repeat journey side, like you said, like if you're just tracking the first journey and maybe your company doesn't have that situation where people are dropping out the funnel a lot and you need to retain every journey. I definitely never want to be the guy that's like, everyone needs our solution kind of thing. You know, that would be probably not just the right way to act and have the right perspective on that. What I will say though, is the really hard part about funnel data is that what often happens is in the quest to not overcomplicate things too early, we build these lesser solutions, right? And we use them for a while. And they work. And, and, and where I'm coming from as well is that we've, we only work with B2B SaaS companies going through kind of like their rapid growth stages. So in our context, you know, you've got maybe your first round of funding or your series A, and you still think you're like wanting to be scrappy and you don't want to build like too sophisticated of a solution. You don't have a CMO yet. 
you know, you've got a scrappy marketing team, maybe one mops person, you maybe don't have the skills. So what happens is you build this kind of hodgepodge kind of okay-ish version. And then what happens is the company starts to accelerate their growth, which is great. I mean, you know, you've been able to grow without this, which is fine. But then what happens is maybe CMO comes in, CRO comes in, they start asking some more sophisticated questions from the data and they're not able to get those answers. So now you have kind of more of the business need to move to a more sophisticated solution. But the problem with funnel tracking is any or any tracking over time, right? When you launch the new solution, it is really hard to back populate data. So now you're kind of starting from day one again. So then you have the issue that no one wants to start from day one because they go, oh, we've been tracking it this way for two years, say. We know this way. I mean, I literally had this conversation with one of, our, one of our clients a couple of days ago. They're actually way bigger. They're like over 200 million ARR. And they've been able to grow really well with this the leading contact plus BI and a bit of snapshotting. That's kind of a little bit different, but they wish they had just invested in something like a custom object years ago because now they just have this big resistance to change because of how far along they've gone and how they don't want to just start data from scratch again. And the kind of the tech debt and process and the difficulty to change once something has been embedded in for so long. So even though I don't want to be the guy that's like over-invest in something too early, if it was me and it was my company, I would probably just want to get this like sorted sooner rather than later. So then I can just grow into it and not have all of the resistance to change and know that I'm going to eventually have these pains that are going to be even harder to solve, right? Like we can deploy this custom object. Like if you're a new startup with a small team and low complexity, you could probably deploy it in a month. You're a big company, lots of complexity, like the company that I'm talking about here, probably going to be like a five-month project, you know, because there's going to be so much work that you have to do to unravel everything that you've got existing and then rebuild the new thing. So that's the trade-offs. I don't know where I perfectly stand on when to invest, but that's the trade-offs that I wrestle with all the time. I've wrestled with it a lot too, and I think there is no perfect solution. I've made both mistakes of, you know, I've been the one maybe putting a solution that's over-architected or too complicated for a stage, and that fails in a different way. You have adoption issues, people don't understand it, they want to revert back to a simpler state. The flip side, of course, is building an inadequate foundation. You can always like repaint your walls, you can redo your roof, you can swap out windows on your house to continue with that analogy, but can't very easily upgrade your foundation or like your basement waterproofing or the insulation on the inside of your walls without being very disruptive. So there's some things that you want to plan ahead for. And I'm also of the mind. I started at a new company two years ago. The funnel was relatively simple, but it's like, is that the priority? It's working today, you know? And But then two years later, like it only ever gets harder to change it. So in many ways, it's like the best day to do it was yesterday and the second best day is today. And the third best will be, you know, tomorrow. Do it as quickly as possible. So there's that. The other piece to that as well, I think, is having a solution that is strong enough that people can grow into it and also simple enough that it can be used more easily by a company at an earlier stage. So there's like switchable features or things that are hiding behind curtains that you can, be, oh, you need this now and like use it before and you didn't notice it there before. Have you had to think through those sorts of challenges in the way that you've designed your solution? Yeah, so I think right now the solution is a bit more of an all or nothing. 
it's not like you can dip your toe in the water with a bit of custom object tracking and then expand from there. The other thing that I'll mention is, obviously, we've been building funnels since we started CS2 and before. But this particular solution where we've got a Salesforce unmanaged package to build out the custom object side, that was built by our chief architect, Alison, middle of last year. We now have 10 clients using it as of today, a lot more deployment planned for this year. So we've gone through this a good amount of times. And honestly, the custom object side, there's two pieces. There's the Salesforce architecture and, and deploying the unmanaged package. And then there's everything else that you need from a marketing and tracking side, right? Like I talked about, we're tying these funnels to the marketing programs. So we need to know we have to have UTM tracking. We have to have proper lead source stamping and capturing of the offer and the channel. We need a proper sales handoff process. There's all of these different pieces that you need, actually, irregardless of whether you're building a data model on a custom object or not. So the complexity actually on the custom object side, with the way that we built it as well, is I guess we're just using Salesforce Flow. I mean, there's a tiny bit of Apex, I think, but it's not a managed Apex heavy Salesforce package that no one's going to understand. So I think it does raise the question that if you already need to have UTM tracking, you know, lead sourcing, all that stuff anyway, regardless of the method, if the thing that's additive is just this basically pulling all the data of the leading contact and account and opportunity, et cetera, onto a custom object, and that is a templatized install, does need to play nice with all the other Salesforce automation that you have. And that's kind of the one bit that we often spend more time on. But it's not as complicated as one might think. So when you think about the trade-off of when should you implant complexity into your org at what time, you already have quite a complicated process. And with this custom object, isn't changing anything from a sales process point of view, right? It's a tracking mechanism and getting the data into the custom object. The one thing I will say though, often when we implement this, we do need to change some of the sales process just because their sales process was trash <laughs> and it needed improvement. But it wasn't necessarily because of the custom object. We just needed to define their stages better and they hadn't defined their stages. So, you know, I'm not crazy in my head and going like everyone needs it from day one. But it is something to think about for earlier stage companies that it's not as scary as you might think. And then also really think about what do you want to grow into for the next 10 years? And are you okay with potentially making a switch five years in and starting data again from that day? I want to ask you a series of questions maybe to go through the structure of this, help people visualize it a little bit and what it means. Maybe I'll just mention first the way I found my path towards this sort of solution was actually really early in the game for me. It was like 2016, so we're going back eight years or so now. And it was sort of like the first level of the game was the hardest mode because it was a company that just had crazy levels of complexity. They had multiple product lines. They had multiple regions. It was multidimensionality to the extreme and that people could be not only in cyclical funnels, but they could be in multiple funnels at the same time. And so those are really hard problem to solve, really fun, but like there were certainly times in that project where I was sort of on calls with my head down on my desk, like, oh no, what will they need next? And I ended up, so, you know, the solutions available at that time ended up solving it, stitching together a few pieces that ended up working well, that pushed us in a particular direction. And a big part of that, like you said, around sales process was creating a separate interface that people had to interact with in order to manipulate these different funnels in different stages. 
Do you require, let's start there maybe in terms of what the salesperson interacts with. Do you require that? Or let's say they have a good process that they like, a good set of statuses that they like. Can they keep doing their thing? And this is just tracking the data better in the background. If they have good statuses and that aligns with also our philosophy on, on the stages too, then we're not going to require them to really do anything different. So like a lot of our clients, they're using like an outreach or a sales loft as well. That's where kind of their team's working a lot of the time. You know, so, so when we think about each of the stage progressions, right, MQL comes in, a lot of times we're tracking to the next stage, the working stage through an activity that's been logged by outreach or sales loft. So they're doing what they want to do over there. Activity gets logged. We're then moving, we're progressing the stage to working automatically for them. Then if there's a meeting, you know, it depends on how they're you know, logging meetings and activities, or if they want to, a lot of times actually our clients create stage zero opportunities for meetings. So again, they're just going into Salesforce, their normal workflow, creating a stage zero opportunity. We're listening for that. We then move the, the lifecycle record to the stage of, you know, whatever we want to call it. It could be meeting books, stage zero opportunity. And then we're listening for opportunity stage progression. So they're what they're doing their normal workflow and there's nothing for them to log into. There's nothing for them to look at outside of this. It's purely just listening for the, the stage triggers that we've set and defined and then moving that lifecycle record through those stages and capturing a lot of data along the way, right? Like we can capture who owns the record at certain stages. Obviously, we track the marketing data for the tipping point. We're then linking to the opportunity so we can pull all the opportunity data onto the lifecycle record to get any, you know, all the normal stuff you would imagine, like opportunity stage, opportunity amount, that kind of stuff. But then any of the fields, we can also track like the account stage at different, like usually you would track that at the beginning of the funnel. So if, for example, the MQL, but there are, the account is a customer type, then maybe we'll log that as a customer funnel versus a prospect funnel. So it's really this other layer tracking to give you that robust data set to do your reporting as opposed to the custom object itself enforcing its own process where there's a bit more nuance to that is like i said nine times out of ten or maybe even ten times out of ten when we come and deploy this for clients their process needs work too so that's like its own project to fix the process and then the custom object sits on top of it starting from the very beginning I'm a visitor. I come to the website of Acme's worked with you. They have the solution in place. I fill out a form. Maybe even the first form I fill out is like content download. Are you creating a funnel at that stage or only if it's time for sales to start working? Only if sales. So it's really a sales, I'm going to call it sales centric, not that marketing doesn't get involved because as you mentioned, you have tipping points and you're tracking the campaigns, but the origin point for the funnel is the sales activity. Correct. It's the tipping point. So technically how it would work is, so say you've got Marketo and you're doing lead scoring, or maybe you have Handraiser kind of that will accelerate them to become an MQL. And their status, they just call it MQL because people are used, used to that. So the status will change to MQL based on you know, your Marketo automation, the scoring, et cetera, and changing the status. And then when that status changed to M MQL, a lifecycle record would be created. And then we will capture what set them to MQL. So it could be like the demo form or the UTMs and all of the marketing information. So it's the initiation of the sales process, but the initiation of the sales process could be marketing led, obviously. So that's where it will tie the marketing activity to the sales process. 
So the marketing automation, let's say Marketo, whatever they might be using, those rules are still dictating when somebody is sales ready or MQL or whatever word we want to use. And at that point you're like, okay, I got it. I'm starting a new funnel and I'm capturing all the information that is available to me. And that's where you could have multiple tipping point types. So I mentioned like PQL, you know, some of our clients might be, I wouldn't say this is the best solution for like true product led where literally they can go all the way through and buy the product without talking to a salesperson, but more sales assisted PLG where you're looking at some buying signals when someone is actually using the product, maybe free trial, et cetera. And then you have some mechanism to say this person is a PQL and needs sales to follow up. So that would work the same way, but maybe it's not Marketo doing that. Maybe it's something else, but sometimes could be. And then the lead status would be PQL instead of MQL. And then that would also be a trigger. Or for sales outbound, the way we'll start to funnel there is if someone is pre-MQL and then we see that sales logs an activity against that person, we then start to funnel an outbound funnel for them. As in create a new record, a lifecycle record. What for that outbound funnel? The outbound funnel is based on, could be somebody like being put into a sales loft cadence or an outreach sequence, something like that. What if the other funnel is already active? Does it start two or it sort of says this one's already superseding it? There's only ever one active funnel at a time. Now, what about, so we use Chili Piper and the opportunity stage for us, but it's uh, the BDR, SDR, the, the rep that's doing the qualification before it gets to an AE is going to have a discovery call or an alignment meeting with that person. So can you trigger a stage change based on like an activity record happening, you know, with particular parameters? Yeah, so that's how we move often. So like I mentioned before, sales radio MQL to working, we automate that through seeing an activity that's been logged by typically one of the sales engagement platforms. Like I mentioned, the meeting booked, you could trigger that based off, you know, a meeting being logged in Salesforce. But these days I'm seeing that first proper collaborative meeting between AE and SDR. A lot of our clients are using stage zero, but you could use the activity object and just see that a meeting's been created. Some of our clients like a stage in between two where there's working, there's maybe like a connected stage before meeting, but that section of the funnel is the most variance, I would say, between clients where you go from sales ready to pipeline in between. You know, there's like sales ready working meeting pipeline, sales ready working connected meeting pipeline. The section that would work on the most to go, okay, what do you want the sales process to be? And then how are we going to trigger to know when those milestones have been achieved? And that can work either using like activity data, state opportunities. There's different ways of handling it. And when you're configuring the custom object, the unmanaged package, you would configure that and basically tell it what those triggers would be for each of those stages. You've sort of answered the question already, but there's some kind of settings interface where you can specify all these things and what it's like for your business. There's sometimes there's some kind of auxiliary automation that you might need to create depending on and this is where some of the, the real weeds here, but some clients, they might want to move forward stages based on like an outreach stage changing. And actually one thing to call out here, if you've got your outreach or sales loft stage synced to your lead status or your contact status directly, change that, sync it to like an outreach stage field and then have other automation that can then progress the lead status. Because what you often find is, particularly with our package, it's relying on the lead status changing. 
the stage can go kind of backwards and forwards like an outreach stage. So you don't want to revert the funnel when you shouldn't. But anyway, another side point. But you might want to build a flow to say, okay, when the outreach stage hits this stage, progress the lead status to working. And then that would then be the trigger for our custom object to say, okay, stage hit working. Could we sort the lead status change? So like I said, it's a bit where we need to do a little bit of digging, but essentially what you're doing is going, what are the stages? How are we defining those stages? What is the actual kind of practical, what is happening in CRM to identify that stage has been met, like an activity, like an outreach stage changing, et cetera. Progress the lead status or contact status forward at that moment. And then that would then progress the custom object record. And I expect a lot of people listening to this maybe having like a build versus buy discussion with themselves a little bit on the margins, like, oh, it's really interesting. Could I build it myself? And, and you certainly could. But I think something that you're paying for when you buy a solution like this is the number of reps that people have gone through to already figure out and solve for bugs, issues, edge cases. And I'm just curious, what are some of the hiccups that you've seen and had to solve for in this process through your iterations? For that, I'd probably have to get Alison on my team to come in and take us through all of the hiccups as the kind of the chief architect. The thing I will say, Alison is the most thorough person that I've ever met in my whole life. I think we might have even shown you when we talked to you before. I met with you and Alison, yeah. She is amazing. Yeah, so like she's gone through, I think we have like 35 different lead conversion scenarios accounted for. So like lead is in this stage and this is kind of a particular thing on that lead and then gets converted. And to then make sure that every lead conversion scenario is accounted for and the final still operate. But I think there's always tinkering and improving the product, but she would be able to speak to that a lot more than I could. I think the biggest thing that we've learned is how to deploy this. Like I mentioned before, there's a lot of prerequisites that you need for this to work and actually any final tracking to work. And I think sometimes like everyone in MOPS, probably like we underestimate how much work that is particularly for our more mature clients where there's a lot of tech debt we have to unravel and there's a lot we have to get working. So I think that has probably been the biggest learning is setting expectations right up front about how much work we need to get them to the baseline for this to even work. You know, it's less even about the package, it's more about their existing foundation. But to your point about build versus buy, someone messaged me on LinkedIn the other day and he said that he saw my post and he had mentioned that he built it like five years ago and it's working great and i was like stoked i mean this isn't our only way anyone can build custom object tracking in salesforce if you have the right salesforce team and you know what you're doing obviously i love our method and it's very tried and tested now and it has a lot of thought that's gone into it so you are buying kind of a shortcut to get there if you were to go with something like that we offer. And the one thing that we really wanted to make this kind of important to us is that it's an unmanaged Salesforce package and it's not a subscription cost. And actually right now we're only charging our clients the deployment cost. We're actually giving it away, but then we are going to start charging for it itself plus the deployment, but still as a one-time fee. And so you think of it more as like an open source product. It's not open source, so you can't just go download it from anywhere, but once we do implement it for you, it is yours to own and use and, and modify as you wish going forward. It just gets you there a lot quicker. And the amount of hundreds or probably over thousands of hours that's been put into this now to really refine the approach would be quite difficult to pull off like for an in-house team. 
That's what I think about as well when I have those discussions with myself. But having it be modifiable is key. Everybody is different. It's not that anyone's processes are so precious, but just sometimes it is easier to like build around the giant boulder that's in the way rather than blast through it. Like there's just certain pragmatic things. Maybe one last question or two around the attribution piece, because we've touched on it, but it would be interesting to come back. There's lots of different ways of looking at this and it can be challenging because somebody moving to a particular stage, even though that stage may still be like a social convention, if we have a stage of like meeting booked, it's like, well, there is this objective fact in the world that a meeting was booked and we can record that or that area to be considered an opportunity and therefore an opportunity was created. It's kind of indisputable. Whereas when we talk about attribution, we're implying a statement about causation. We're saying that this thing caused that thing to happen, which is of course a very problematic and messy thing to say because who really knows why something happened in reality and there can be many factors and there's lots of other touches that aren't getting there. So how do you think about tipping point? And I know you're capturing that first tipping point when the sales process begins. How do the rest of those touches, if at all, factor in? Or are you really looking at it primarily from that tipping point demand capture touch when you do your kind of campaign analysis? I mean, the first port of call there is looking at it from the tipping point demand capture touch. And obviously I'm an advocate for this approach, but I could also tell, you know, do a whole dissertation on why single touch attribution has its flaws too, right? I'm not naive to that. We can capture other touches along the journey. So you could look at, you know, touch before certain milestones or some clients we've been talking about other milestones, like they may have come in like through an outbound funnel or marketing inbound funnel, but then also signed up for the product. So you might want to represent that on this object. Or they've either hit some other threshold around maybe getting to like a 6QA from ABM. We might want to represent that on the object as well. But I still think to your point, it's not multi-touch attribution and it's not trying to be, right? And I think everyone probably knows there's a lot of flaws with multi-touch attribution as well. And I like to come back to none of these models are perfect. What you want is that they're going to give you some insight to improve your business. I see both of these types of attribution in several different layers, but one of them is the difficulty to track. And then there's like the difficulty to analyze. I think funnel metrics is actually quite difficult to track. That's why we have our custom object, but it's actually relatively easy to analyze. Like if you look at two channels and then the conversion rates between the two, you can draw a relatively easy insight from that. Multi-touch attribution is actually relatively easy to set up, especially if you get a tour. It's actually really hard to get insight out of it because it basically says everything is working. So, I mean, there's a million other trade-offs. It's the participation trophy of attribution. Everyone gets a little piece of the pie. Exactly. So it's tough. I had a previous discussion with Sydney Waterfall from Refine Labs, and she talked a bit about the touch prior to the sales process beginning. And I found it really interesting. It's a bit of a light bulb moment for me because People think about the first touch, which is just the very first touch, or they think about like last touch before the opportunity was created. But you could have lots of things going on in between when a salesperson starts working on a lead and then maybe they just start binging your content and then you have a last touch that's completely unrelated. Whereas the sales, let's call it the sales working tipping point touch, tells you a lot about, not necessarily about what was influential for that lead, but how valuable is it when we reach out to people at this point in time? You know, so it's kind of like less about like, oh, this thing is just responsible for everything, but more like, 
Should we really reach out to people when they just register for a webinar at a good time? Or should we call every ebook lead? Or should we only do demo request leads or something in between? And I think that's really valuable. And that was just a new concept for me. I guess I hadn't really thought about it at that time. But I think that actually gives you a really valuable insight into like, where should you deploy sales effort? Where should you not? A hundred percent. I mean, when you think about what's happened over the last 18 months with companies trying to get efficiency gains, right? Versus growth at all costs, particularly in our industry, you don't want sales like having like a 0.3 conversion rate from what you're sending them to what they're actually turning into meetings and pipeline. And so if you don't have the data to go, well, I sent them all these content syndication leads and nothing happened, but I sent them these other leads and they converted a much higher rate, then you can't, maybe don't turn off content syndication. I mean, I've got kind of a strong opinion on content syndication, but everyone has their own channels that they find successful, but at least you don't send them to sales, right? And waste their time. And maybe if you reduce that volume by looking at this type of data, you maybe you don't have to reduce your sales team. I mean, you could, but if you'll just be much, you'll be deploying those sales, that so those sales hours so much better because they're going to be following up on people that want to speak to them and they're going to be able to have a much better curation of that buyer experience because they're not just wasting their time just trying to chase down people that have no interest in buying. That's a great point. And I think that is the capstone of the funnel. I'm really glad we could do this. It's just such an interesting challenge to solve. I think because it also is so much pain and as operators, we like things to like work well and you feel like a wound in your soul when you know that there's like duct tape and things that are just dust bunnies that are swept under the rug. You don't like that. You want things to be clean and well architected. Love what you folks have done and look forward to seeing more as you deploy this out into the market. Really glad you could come and chat with me about it. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's been great to talk about this. And I think you've been on our podcast a couple of times, once with both me and Chrissy and one with Chrissy. So it's great to turn the table a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll have to keep the dialogue going. 100%. All right. Well, thanks, Charlie. Speak again soon. Yep. Cheers, Justin. Hey, everyone. I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.